Well, we continue our study in 1 Kings. This evening, I want to do a little survey work with you very quickly. It won't take too long, I don't think. Uh, when I was in seminary and a younger pastor, I had a view of the prophets as kind of a homogenous group of people. Uh, and maybe that's your view, but the more I've studied them over the years, the more I realize they were a bunch of different kind of characters, every one of them. They had some really strange idiosyncrasies and, shall I say, oh, oddities about them. Um, and that goes all the way into John the Baptist, that they all had their own style. We'll put it like that. They had their own style. That's probably uh, the most politically correct way to say it. <laughs> their own style. Uh, Let's see how many of them we can name. Some of the prophets, and if you're going to name a prophet, you're going to name what you kind of think of as one of the quirkier things that he might have been required to do or do in his ministry. And we're going to leave out Nathan the prophet because that's our guy tonight. So we're going to leave that one off, off of your list. So let's just see who wants to start us off. Elijah. Elijah. J comes before S. Keeps telling Elisha, go home, go home, go home. Just leave me alone, go home. Because <laughs> he knows he's going away. Okay, who else? Nehemiah. I would probably, uh, most people wouldn't put him in the category of prophets. Uh, more of the kingly group. But certainly he had the role of a prophet to some degree. Another ones. Yes. Hosea, that we talked about having to have some really strange named kids and had to marry a prostitute um, as a picture of the unfaithfulness of Israel. There's something tough to be asked of to do. Ezekiel had a... Yep, and along with Elijah, too, for that matter, a little bit. But, uh, yep, and his floor, forehead of flint. I always know Ezekiel by his forehead of flint. He's just a stubborn guy. Huh? That's what? You, you two are on the same track. Yeah, no cheating. Give me another one. You know the books of the Bible, right? All right, Samuel, First, Second Samuel. Samuel's the first of the prophets, we call him. He's the transition from the judges. He's the last of the judges, first of the prophets. And so he's our transition uh, formally. Now, obviously, Moses was a prophet. There were, other, there were other people who prophesied. Joseph prophesied. But in terms of the writing of the prophets, we usually think of Samuel as being the first of that period of time, ending the judges. Any idiosyncrasies of Samuel come to mind? One robe a year. He was the surrendered child raised by Eli and had to tell Eli he was doomed. As a kid, you get to go to your mentor, your guy raising you, tell him you're doomed. God's finished with you. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. How about Isaiah? Any idiosyncrasies jump to mind with Isaiah? Yes. We're talking about Isaiah. I thought you were going to answer my question like you knew Isaiah like that. 
Okay, the 66 books. What about his idiosyncrasies, though? Not his message, but his style. Did he weep too? Doesn't really list that as much. I mean, Jeremiah, we have a whole book called Lamentations written by him. Okay, you have the hot coals. He was the one that was, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And then he says, oh, woe to me, when he gets to heaven. He says, oh, woe is me. He's also the guy that had to preach naked for three years. You guys are saying, that's in there? It's in there. If you haven't read Isaiah, read again. The guy had three-year assignment in the buff. Another one. How about Jonah? A few idiosyncrasies there. Hey, not a good swimmer. <laughs> didn't want to preach. He didn't want to go to those people. How about them? Okay, and probably the lesser, the, the other prophets you kind of lose track of a little bit, of Zephaniah and Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. You don't, you're not as familiar with some of them. Uh, but they all have their style, their idiosyncrasies. Uh, how about Daniel? Daniel's in the books of the prophets. O king, live forever. Right? Yes. Can't hear you. He had dreams. He sure did. And he didn't, he had sleepless nights after his dreams. He did not just jump and know all of his dreams just like that. He, didn't, he had to really struggle for the interpretation sometimes. Okay, these are just a handful. How about John the Baptist? Last of the prophets. Broke the silence to a degree with his dad and him. He ate grasshoppers and wore camel's hair and lived out in the desert. Kind of in a, a scene life, kind of. Uh, which is odd to us, but it was really a whole group kind of lived like that. Um, in Israel in that day. So we have an idea that the prophets all had kind of their uh, style. Some were very um, in your face, very abrupt, very uh, forward. Uh, others were very subtle. And Nathan the prophet is probably one of the more interesting styles, I think, that's really uh, something we wouldn't necessarily say, well, that's going to be effective, but it was. And God used him that way. In fact, we might be a little bit critical of him, especially when we look at tonight's passage. Uh, but uh, Nathan was a, was a very, um, how should I say this, careful handler of the king. Uh, many of them were just right out there and just said, this is the word of the Lord. Thus says the word of the Lord. And Nathan, we don't find that. Um, what's your first recollection of Nathan the prophet. What's his engagement with David regarding? Bathsheba. The sin of Bathsheba. How does he do it? He doesn't come in and say, you committed sin, you dirty rotten, he, you know, king, you're going to be... No, he doesn't come in, he doesn't attack the king, doesn't name his sin. He comes in and just says, I have a story for you. <laughs> Very laid back. He's probably the most laid back of the prophets. Um, and I have a story for you. And he tells the little story, and the king says, this is horrible outrage of justice, and we need to correct this. And he says, well, you're the man. You're the one that did this. Just replace sheep with wives. 
you've got all your wives, but you have to go steal one man who only had one wife. But you have all your own. And so Nathan has a very different approach to the ministry. And what I want to really get out here as we look into this is to realize that all of these men were prophets of God. And their style was somewhat dictated by God. Obviously, some of the strange behaviors like Hosea's and Isaiah's and some of the things those men did were dictated by God. God told them to do that, not necessarily something they chose to do. Uh, same thing with the plays, the, the play acting and the, that uh, several of them had to do, you know, having to dig a hole through your wall and crawl out of it and uh, in the sight of everybody as, as a little drama. Uh, so we have some of that dictated by God, but we also find that within each of their personalities, you're going to have different styles and approaches to their ministry. Their ministry is overwhelmingly to confront people about sin. <coughs> There's lots of different ways to confront people about sin and about issues at hand. And Nathan's, you might say, well, that's a pretty subtle approach, but it's very effective, and it gets David's attention. Uh, and so when we confront people with sin in our age, there's not just one right way to do it. I used to think that the guys on the street corners with the great big signs saying, repent, you sinners, uh, that they were, the, they were the, the ones. They were, you know, the bold ones for Christ, and they were the ones that, that were really getting the message out, and and I always kind of wonder, you know, but it just didn't fit me. My personality, I just, I mean, I, I've tried, and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm just not this kind of person. I'm not the one that's going to sit there and uh, just get a bullhorn and stand on the corner and start shouting out their sins. Um, Jonah did eventually, by the way. You notice Jonah's attitude when he actually gets to Nineveh? Oh, just three more days, you're all doomed. <laughs> you almost got that attitude going and uh, couldn't wait till it happened uh, and so he was kind of happy to declare God's judgment to people he didn't like until he'd repented um, and but uh, we tend to think well this is the best way to do it these people are real evangelists uh, and we we forget that there is a broad spectrum among the prophets of how they approach people with regard to their sin and sometimes it's very direct and sometimes, uh, and John the Baptist, I think, was pretty direct with it. It got him in enough trouble. Uh, so also with Elijah, you walk in and just say, you know, this shouldn't be going on, and, and uh, let's get all the ball worshipers over here, and, and let's put it on. Let, let's find out who's the Lord. Um, so there is a, a place for that, and there's a context for that, and there's a personality for that, and there's a style for that, but it is not for everyone. And I used to feel a little guilty that that wasn't my style. And, that I, and I tried. And I remember in college and even in the seminary, a lot of the men would pick their favorite preacher and try to copy his style and his look. And you could pick it up so quickly who they've been listening to, and that's their style. And instead of developing themselves from within spiritually and then letting God use who they were, they wanted to emulate their favorite preacher. 
Uh, and so if their favorite preacher had certain mannerisms, they would pick up the mannerisms, certain inflection of voice, they would use that inflection of voice. If they always said amen, they would say amen. And, and uh, it was, they picked their style up from someone rather than just allowing themselves to come forward. And so when we look through some of this, I don't want to appear critical. Um, we certainly accept Nathan's style, uh, but on the forefront of it, when we first address this, this is like, well, this is kind of sneaky. But Nathan is that way. I mean, he just walks in and tells you a story. We got this situation. This guy took somebody else's lamb. He had all these sheep. He didn't go grab this one, one precious lamb this other guy. What a sneaky prophet <laughs> to come and do it. And he's kind of going to do that again here. He does that at our introduction to him. And we're going to find it again at really almost the wrapping up of his public ministry that we are aware of. He certainly was still a prophet into the days of Solomon. But I also want to remind you of something else Nathan did. Uh, David asked Nathan the prophet, says, I want to build a temple for God. And Nathan says, do whatever's in your heart. That's great. Glad to hear that. Then turns around, heads out, and God says, you forgot to ask me? <laughs> Go back in there. Tell David, it is not for you, because you have blood on your hands. It is for your son to do it. And that's going to be kind of important when we get down to the study, when we get into chapter 2 uh, with David's instructions to Solomon and the preparations. And then, of course, the, the, one of the early actions of Solomon, once he establishes his own uh, reign, is to build the house of the Lord, the temple. And so Nathan himself has to do an about-face and walk in and, and say, oops, um, God says, uh, don't do what's in your heart. Uh, you have a good heart, good stuff, but uh, it's for your sons. It's for your lineage. And David's response, you might say, might be anger or frustration with a prophet, but it wasn't because he recognized God just gave me a promise. That as long as my sons follow him, there will always be one of us on the throne. And that's the Davidic covenant is wrapped up in that about face of the prophet. And so, you know, Nathan or, or David, instead of being dejected or, or embarrassed or angry, he is praising the Lord. Good testimony. So uh, this is the history of Nathan. So we come into 1 Kings uh, chapter 1, and we again have... Uh, Verse 10 is where we're going to pick up. We have Nathan being a key player here. Uh, so let's go ahead and read that. It says, But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, the mighty man, men, or Solomon his brother. Now Nathan uh, spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. Kind of an odd approach. You know, if something's wrong is going down, just march yourself in. You are the prophet of God in the land. You are in David's administration. You have been with him the entirety almost of his reign um, and uh, certainly you would be have a hearing. But he recognizes something about David. And whether it's the knowledge of David that moves Nathan this direction, or just Nathan's style, it's just the way he does his prophesying. He recognizes something about David, and that is that David is really overly permissive with his boys, with his sons. And it has created havoc. And so instead of marching in and challenging that right off, he wants to set up 
an environment, much like his story about the sheep to set up the, the conviction of sin over Bathsheba, he's going to set David up. He's going to uh, draw Bathsheba into his plan. This is all preconceived. He, he, has, he wants to approach David in a very respectful manner, but he wants to make sure the message gets clearly into David's brain that things are falling badly, and they're falling badly fast. So he enlists the, the help of Bathsheba, not Solomon, not Zadok the priest, not Benaiah. He goes to Bathsheba um, because apparently she has a promise from Abraham that Solomon will be the next king. So he goes to her, and so, whether that was how public that was, we're not sure, but Bathsheba knew it. And so, in verse 11, Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggath, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Come, please let me now give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. So he immediately confronts her that she might not even know what's going on, but he does, whether God revealed that to him or it was just he was recognized he was invited and didn't go. Or It says he wasn't invited, though, so... He found out about this, and he's going to deal with it. So he confronts Bathsheba first and says, Listen, if this thing goes down, the first people they're going to hunt down is Solomon and you, and they're going to kill you. So your life is at stake here. Your son's life is at stake. So I'm going to give you some advice. I want you to go right now. It says in verse 13, Go immediately to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly your son Solomon shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? Then, while you are still talking, where with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So here's the plan. You might consider it a scheme even. We're going to kind of gang up on the king, and you go in first, because you're his wife, and, and you have the promise and then I'm going to come in behind you as if we didn't know each other were involved in this. And you might say, well, that's kind of deceptive. Well, so is going in with a story that wasn't real. And that's just kind of how Nathan was. He just set David up and let David figure it out. And so he says, you go in and tell him, and everything they said was the truth. He just set it up to carefully approach David on a matter that was sensitive to the king. And the king could easily put up his defenses very quickly. And that's really the background of the story. The story is there, and now you've condemned the thief, the man who took the other man's sheep, and so it, you don't have any defense now because you've already determined what justice is. Now apply it to yourself. So he's setting David up. So he sends in Bathsheba, um, and uh, they have a very good relationship still at this point. Her son is Jedediah, the beloved of the Lord, uh, that uh, this is the one that's known for his wisdom already uh, to a degree uh, and is uh, set up for the kingdom. You go in and talk to him first. And then I'll come in and I'll just talk to him like I didn't know what you were talking about. It'll just be a happy coincidence. We just are on each other's uh, backside, and, and I just came in after you. So Bathsheba says, okay, and she goes in and does exactly what, what Nathan the prophet tells her to do. Verse 17, 
uh, well, Bathsheba in verse 16 bows and does homage to the king. The king says, what is your wish? She says, my lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your maidservant, saying, surely Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. So now look, Adonijah has become king, and now my lord the king, you do not know about it. He has sacrificed oxen and fatted cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon your servant he has not invited. And as for you, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are on you, that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will happen when my lord the king rests with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders or sinners in some tasks, but essentially that that we're traitors, that we're going to be against the king if the king is Adonijah. So she goes in there, lays it all out there, starts off with a question. Uh, You gave me this promise and reminds him of that and then informs him of what has transpired. Uh, All in a, and then tells him the consequences. If this goes on, uh, you know that Solomon's life is in jeopardy. So here you are, you're going to have to choose between your two sons. Because if this son's reign is established today, um, your son, the one beloved of God, Jedediah, the one the Lord loves, the one who is supposed to be on the throne, will be in jeopardy. So she lays the whole story out there, and he can barely process it all. And it says, immediately, knock, 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 here comes Nathan the prophet. And so um, she was still talking with the king. Nathan the prophet comes in. They told the king, saying, here's Nathan the prophet. Bathsheba leaves, because they only get one audience at a time. All right, and so here comes Nathan. And uh, how do I know Bathsheba left? It doesn't say that, because later on they have to call Bathsheba back in. We're going to get to that a little bit. They're going to call Bathsheba in and say, bring Bathsheba here. That's in verse 28. And so... um, Bathsheba leaves, in comes Nathan the prophet, and so it's like two totally different conversations. Just imagine, this is a pretty frail old king, and he's like, okay, I got to deal with that, that's on his brain, and here comes Nathan the prophet, what's on your mind? And here comes Nathan the prophet, and he says, um, my lord, O king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Did you decide to make Adonijah king? Because he's kind of setting it up like he's supposed to be king. And here and he rehearses again exactly pretty much the account of the facts that Bathsheba has already shared. And in verse 26, But he has not invited me, your servant, nor Zadok the priest, nor Benaniah, nor the son of Jehoiada, uh, nor your servant Solomon. Has this thing been done by my lord the king, and you have not told your servant who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? So Nathan goes in <laughs> as if he doesn't know. He doesn't know if, uh, what the king's will is here. Well, he does know. He knows what Bathsheba knows. And he goes in kind of like, um, am I out of the loop? Did, did a decision get made? I missed the meeting? Did a memo go out and it didn't get to me? Because this is what's going on. Is that what your plan was, king? Because I'm, I'm all for you if that's your plan, but I didn't know that was your plan. Yeah, I just want to know what your plan is. I mean, that's about as laid back and non-aggressive as you can get, right? Is this your plan? I didn't know. Wham! David is suddenly confronted with confirmation that this isn't just his wife's 
uh, imagination or, or uh, worrying or anxiety. This is real. And so here comes Nathan. He's planned this all out very carefully. He's scripted it. And, and its effect is predictable, uh, gladly. And so, verse 28, King David answers, says, Call Bathsheba to me. She came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And uh, so now we have Nathan and Bathsheba there. The king took an oath and said, I'm going to do this in public now, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. So I certainly will do this day. He recognizes the urgency that it is going down right now in the city. And he has to take action. And that's why Nathan says, we're going to do this today. You're going to go in there right now. I'm going to be right on your heels. And we're going to bam, bam, hit the king with this and, and jar him and realize this is not something you can just ignore. You ignored Absalom. You've been ignoring Adonijah. Those were disaster, that was a disaster with Absalom. This is going to be a disaster if you don't do something. David recognizes it and says, I've got to, I'll take action today. And he does so. And so Bathsheba bows down to the king, paid homage to the king, uh, and her response is, let my lord king live forever. And in come now Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, they came before the king. And we have this whole entourage now of the official king's administration. This would be like his cabinet. This, these are the guys that when they come out and say, this is what the ruling is that you trust them because they have the king's ear, the king has their ear. And they are his mouthpiece. Remember, he is pretty much bedbound. This is all happening in his bedroom. And we're reminded of that here in a little bit because uh, his uh, caretaker is with him in that uh, place still. And so here they come, and uh, the instruction is verse 33. We're going to do this today. Take with you the servants of your Lord. Have Solomon and my son ride on my own mule. Take him down to Gihon. There let Zach the priest and the prophet anoint him king over Israel and blow the horn and say, Long live King Solomon. Then he shall come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne. He shall be king in my place for I have appointed him to be a ruler over Israel and Judah. And then of course uh, their response is, Amen. May the Lord God of my Lord the king say so too. As the Lord has been with my Lord the King, so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. Zadok the priest and everyone does exactly as they have been instructed. So they take the king's mule, they take the king's administration, they blow the horn, they make this public. Now what's Adonijah doing? He's having a semi-private feast with all the dis other officials. He's kind of doing this in a subversive way. And David says, the way to nip this in the bud, if Adonijah is trying to become king in a subversive way, is I'm just going to go full-blown public. There were no invitations printed. There was no other preparations. There was no ball planned. There was, the coronation is instantaneous. 
and everyone is blown away by it. And so as soon as the horn sounds, the shofar, as soon as the announcement is made, the anointing of the king by the priest and the prophet, remember priest, prophet, king, those are your three uh, areas of leadership, top leadership. So now you have the priest, the prophet, anoint the king, and they're presented. He's riding on the king's mule, goes right up and sits on the king's throne, and everyone is to declare as they're going along, long live, is how we would say, long live the king. Uh, what was their exact phrase? It was... Um, I can't find it. Long live King Solomon. Um, and again, uh, it's really uh, uh, it's really just uh, Solomon lives. Uh, Solomon is the king. Long live the king. And so we have him put on the throne in a very public fashion the very day because of the urgency of nipping what Adonijah is doing in the bud. Now, we already know what, because of last week, what's going to happen to Joab and Adonijah and um, who's the other priest? Uh, Z- no, Zadok is the good one. What's the other? Yeah, anyway, um, that's another A. So all of that, we know where it's going to, um, but they're still at their banquet. And while they're at their banquet, the procession that is moving Solomon from the Gihon Valley, and it, I think they purposely picked that place. Uh, that's to the south of Jerusalem. You go through the city of David, and it's a big hill going down south. Um, and uh, as you go south, and there's a Gihon Valley down there. Um, they've really cleaned that all up now, and it's a real pretty little park, and they have concerts and stuff down in there because it's kind of a natural place to do that. And so they go from way down there, and they start coming up, and you think they knew where the party was? I'm pretty sure they knew exactly where Adonijah was having his party. And they are going to have the procession go right by it. And so while they're sitting there at this banquet, getting ready and, and determining their own king, here, what's that noise? What is all this? And in comes Jonathan, and he says, hey, you guys are here in a party, but you guys should see what's going on outside. And he recounts for them everything that has happened. He's kind of their spy, and he's out there recounting it all, uh, keep an eye on the city, and he comes in and says, this is what's going down. So you would think, well, there's going to be a conflict here. Nope. Every single one of them goes home, sneaks home. They sneak out. They realize that if Zadok, Nathan, Benaiah, the mighty men, all the city has recognized that David has made it public. He kept it between him and Bathsheba. Nathan knew whether God told him or Bathsheba told him, whatever it was, Nathan knew who was supposed to be king. uh, And now... David's going to make it as public and as fast as possible, and they realize we are in mortal danger. And we haven't had time or opportunity to raise up any kind of force to take the city, and they all slink away like they should, a bunch of schemers, and uh, they all are afraid. And so um, Solomon's on the throne, 
and it has all uh, occurred. And verse 49 is where it is. So all the guests who were with Adonijah were afraid and arose, and each went his way. Adonijah didn't go home because it was at his home. He runs to the tabernacle, lay, horn, lay, lay his arms on the horns of the altar, uh, which is a sign of, um, I'm just begging for mercy. Uh, it's a sign of uh, the idea of sanctuary. I'm trying to think that you won't destroy me if I'm in the, the tabernacle. This is not the temple. The temple hasn't been built yet, remember. But he's laying hor- his arms on the horns of the altar. And we, the, the horns of the altars are the four corners. There's, there's uh, prominent features. They're called the horns of the altar. He lays his whole hands on, arms on them and holds on to them as a sign of, of seeking his, his own life's uh, deliverance. And so um, the plan of Nathan works perfectly. Solomon is on the throne. Everyone's excited. The subversive plot is, is instantly dissolved. Uh, and... Now we have this declaration by David of who the son is. And uh, the first act of Solomon is, as king is to confront the subversive group. So your first job, the day you sit on the throne, is to deal with your brother, the commander of the army, and one of the priests. That's your first job. Welcome to your kingdom. <laughs> Forget the first hundred days or whatever. We're interested in measuring the presidency or whatever. They always say that the first hundred days sets the tone. And I don't know who made that up, but uh, here's first day. So let's see what happens. <clears throat> uh, Verse 51, and it was told Solomon, saying, Indeed, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon, for look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Solomon says, If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. Has he tied himself to anything? Adonijah? about you it's not I'm not a vindictive person remember what was the issue between God and David over building the temple this is very important in the first chapters of first kings the issue was blood on your hands you have slaughtered so many people and warfare and other things and you have just too much blood on your hands And you're going to hear Solomon over and over and over again, and we already saw it last week when we talked about it, saying, his blood be on his own head. Is he going to have to kill Adonijah? Yes, but not because he's a warrior or bloodthirsty at all in any way. And the same thing he's going to see with... um, with, with some of the other enemies of David that David identifies that humiliated him and, and wronged him, and Joab we already looked at, Shammai we're going to get to. And so um, he, he gives them this platform and saying, uh, you don't have anything to fear from me unless there's wickedness in you. The one you should be afraid of is yourself. If you do right and you just be a 
faithful part of my kingdom, you live. If you try to do this subversion stuff, you're going to die. And Solomon will continue to say this, their blood is on themselves. That's true of, of Adonijah, it's true of Joab, and it's true of Shammai. He gives them these opportunities. And he says, no, these people, this is justice, and this blood isn't on me. And that's critical when you think about, and I'm sure somewhere along the line David communicated this, you're going to build the temple instead of me, because God said through Nathan the prophet, who is now still the prophet, you got too much blood on your hands. Remember the about face? Whoop, whoop, come back. Oh, wait a minute. You can't do what's on your heart. Good heart, bad plan. Okay, you're not the man. Son's the man. You think Solomon was told that at some point? I'm pretty sure he was. And so he's going to take enormous steps to keep his hands free of men's blood. Not just literally, he's not going to do it himself, but but spiritually, and, and he's, he's not going to be guilty of bloodshed. And so he puts it on Adonijah. He says, you don't have anything to fear from me. I don't have that bloodthirst. Uh, I'm not interested in getting even with everybody. That's not how I'm going to establish my throne. My throne is not going to be established by war. It's not going to be established by violence. It's going to be established by wisdom, righteousness, and godliness. That's what's going to establish my kingdom. I am a different kind of king. And so look at the difference. Here's Bathsheba, Nathan, saying, if he becomes king, the first act he's going to do is kill us. And remember, Absalom tried to kill his dad. Hunted him down. Got his hair caught in a thicket and lost his life. But, um, which just reminds you, go make sure you go visit Greg before you go in to do anything like that, okay? You want to take on an enemy, make sure you have a good haircut before you do it. So, um, these are young men of violence. Solomon says, I'm not like that. That's the way you would have functioned. It's not how I function. Because I have something on the horizon that I have to keep myself ready for, and that something is building the temple. And God demands, if you're going to be the one in charge of building the temple, no blood on your hands. And so that's going to keep coming up in the first few chapters. His blood be upon his own head. And that's why it's so important. It's because Solomon has to maintain that condition of, of judicial innocence um, in the establishment of his kingdom so that he can build the temple according to God's plan. And so this is how it comes to be. And we're going to look uh, next week more at, at the last words of David, instructions of Solomon. But first day on the throne, uh, we start off with, you know, subversive plot happening at, at this house. We have Nathan, who seems to be plotting himself. He's got this little scheme worked out to get David's attention and realize this has to be done today. And so we're going to, we have this whole little uh, prepared dialogue and uh, we have a procession, we have the king on the throne, and we have justice evident from day one. This is a guy that's going to rule not by violence. Saul did, David did, not Solomon. Violence is not how he's going to do this. He's going to do it with wisdom and godliness. 
and he establishes that on day one of his reign as king. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the testimony of these individuals involved, of Solomon, of his mother, of his father, of Nathan the prophet, and all those that were obedient to David's instructions. And Lord, we thank you for the way you work through your people. And there's not just one personality, there's not just one way of proclaiming your word and of calling men to obedience and to righteousness and to do that which pleases you, but rather that you use uh, many ways, many personalities, many styles to communicate your truth. And Lord, our prayer is that each one of us would go out with the Spirit of the Lord and, and minister in accordance with who we are in you and how your Spirit chooses to use us and recognize that it is different for each one of us. That some of us can be more uh, direct and others uh, more subtle and, and uh, Lord, that we might not uh, be judging of that means, but that we might, like Paul, just be pleased that your name is going forth in every way possible, into the hearts of men. And so, Lord, give us a spirit of, of generosity in our attitude towards one another, towards others who minister. And we do thank you for the variety that is there, for the different members of the body and their functions that are distinct and different, yet all to your praise, honor, and glory. And Lord, our prayers that we too I learned from Solomon today. And Lord, we thank you for that immediate confirmation that it is through wisdom that a house is established and not violence. Lord, may it be here as well. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.